So if you take your Bibles and go to John uh, chapter 12, we are at this moment in the Gospel of John where uh, we see Jesus has set his face, set his priorities uh, toward Jerusalem. Uh, that's where he's headed um, at this point. And, and, and we'll see throughout this text, last week it kind of started, and we're going to touch on some of that, that he is, he is resolute, he is determined, uh, he's, he's going for it, and nothing's going to stop him at this point. And throughout this gospel, both John and Jesus are recording that the time has not yet come. The time has not yet come. The time has not yet come. In chapter 2, verse 4, this was Jesus' first miracle uh, where his mother, Mary, approached him and said, hey, they're out of wine, um, and and this is going to be an embarrassing thing, so uh, you need to to step up here in this moment. And Jesus said these words. He said, woman, my my time has not yet come. Like, it's not time for me to start this. Um, in verse, uh, chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, Jesus had said to his brothers, his brothers was like, hey man, you've, you've kind of ran out of town, we're hanging out over here, it's time for us to go back to Judea, you need to go, you've got this whole ministry movement happening, and we're gaining some popularity, and we're gaining uh, uh, some ground here, and so we need to get back in there, and, and, and the text would say, Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about about it that its works are evil you go up to the feast i'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come so jesus sends them off and then he sneaks in behind them and he goes anyway right and when he gets in he has this conversation as he goes into jerusalem he knows that he's going to have confrontation he's going to have these debates with these religious leaders and these crowds um, and at the end of it, he, you see in verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him. So this is where it starts. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And then in chapter 8, uh, we see where, um, where Jesus is speaking in the temple. This is the feast of dedication uh, where he stands up and he says things like, I'm the light of the world. I'm, I'm the source of living water. He's saying all of these things. Um, and, and then it says in verse 20, these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So you remember in John chapter 11, when we see Lazarus become ill and, and he dies and Jesus would receive this news and he would remain two more days where he was. He said, I know he's dead, but this death, it's, it's going to end in God getting much glory out of all of this. Uh, and so he stays, in two, stays two more days where he is before he heads toward Bethany, toward Lazarus and his sisters and his family. But you remember when we talked about that, his destination, when he turned his face to go and address the situation with Lazarus, he was ultimately t- put, parting, pointing his face toward Jerusalem. Like ultimately that was his end goal. He's demonstrating at this point that the hour is coming. Like up to this point, the hour has yet to come. But when we head to Bethany, when we do this thing, the hour is going to come. It's, it's going to be here. So what is, this, what is this hour that he continues to declare that we'll see in this text that he'll declare the hour has come? Well, it's the hour will, where he will give his life as a ransom for many on the cross. That's the hour that we're talking about here. And so it's not only to fulfill his purpose as to why he came, but it's actually to fulfill the purpose of this world, right? It's, to, it's to, so, that, so that mankind can be uh, uh, part of God's family, that, that, that they could be part of the kingdom, that they would be uh, people who are part of this, this reign and rule of, of God Almighty. 
And so we're going to be in verse 12. Uh, and if you want to just take a look at verse 1, we're going to kind of read so we can get some context. And we're going to read through verse uh, 26. So in verse 1, chapter 12, it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave him a dinner. That for, they, they gave a dinner for him there. Martha, Martha served, and Lazarus was one, of the, one reclining at the table. And Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And in verse 9 says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Isn't that hilarious? A guy who was dead was raised to life. They're going to kill him. Silly. Um, because on the account of him, many Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And here's our text for today where we pick up. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Up to this point, the hour has not yet come, but now here it is. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I wanted to read this scripture, reread it from last week, starting in verse 1. Trent took us from verse 1 to verse 11 last week, but I want to revisit that and recapture some truths that he he shared with us, and, and, and also just kind of connect that, that moment to, to where we're headed uh, today, because what we'll see here is this is a continuation of what's been happening as Jesus was riding toward Jerusalem. What you see in each moment, that there will be someone who totally gets what's going down, and then there will be someone who totally misses it. 
And it's, it's a continuation of this that we saw uh, last week where Jesus arrives at this area, uh, this moment where it's fixing to boil over. There's a lot of um, excitement, a lot of energy, a lot of things going on. And it's kind of at a tipping point, And Jesus arrives on the scene in this area. Um, and the raising of Lazarus that we saw in chapter 11, it's created quite the buzz in the area. And everybody's talking about it. It's a big moment. It would be a big moment if someone in our community died and a guy walked up and said, hey, get up. And he gets up. We would talk about this for a few days. So that's what's going on here. And as we saw, there were many who believed in Jesus because of this miracle, of what they saw. They put their faith in Jesus. They believed in him. But then there were some who went and told the Jews. And that's silly. Like, how do you get there? How do you get to that place where you see a man raised from death to life and say, I'm going to tell like, how do you get to that place? How cold, how dead does your heart have to be? And so some who totally get it and some who completely miss it. And they run and tell the religious leaders. And so these guys get together, these religious leaders, they, they say, okay, we need, to, um, we need to figure out what to do here. This is becoming an issue. And their conclusion was, we're going to take him out. He's, he's got to go. He has been made public enemy number one at this point because he was a threat to their comfort and he was a threat to their power. He says, we can't have this guy running around screaming he's the king and doing all of these things. He's going to take our comfort. He's going to take our power and our influence away from us by doing this. And so they put out a hit on Jesus. His disciple, he and his disciples, they, they get out of town. They flee to a wilderness place called Ephraim. And, and, and the Passover is now at hand. Here we are. Uh, and they, they put Jesus on the hit list. They say, hey, Passover's coming. Over two million people are going to be in the city. Surely Jesus is going to be around. If anybody sees him, come get us. Because he's going down. We're bringing, we're bringing him down. And so as we opened chapter 12 last week. We didn't dwell on this moment, but it was a humongous statement. It says, therefore, Jesus went to Bethany. Knowing everything that is going down and knowing that he is public enemy number one, this is a turning point. He's headed to Jerusalem, and he knows what awaits him there. His disciples know what awaits him there. What we'll see is that uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they know what's fixing to go down here. And so he goes to Bethany, which is just a suburb of Jerusalem. It's just about two miles off the beaten trail from Jerusalem. And so here's the, here's the big idea about that. If Jesus was looking to preserve his life, he wouldn't be doing this. If he was looking to save his life, to keep his life, he wouldn't be headed to Bethany. He wouldn't be headed to Jerusalem. He would be halfway to Galilee by now, likely. And so rather than running from danger, Jesus marches straight towards it. And on his way to his arrest, and ultimately on his way to his death, he stops off to see some friends for dinner. Stops in Bethany to see Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And I find this very interesting because, I mean, I grew up in a time where people would just like drop by and visit, you know, like just family, friends or whatever. Like we didn't call and tell anyone we were coming like or whatever. You would just like go visit and you would just happen up on somebody's porch and visit. And it was cool. And so this is kind of like, oh, Jesus is here. Somebody go, go, go get the door. He's here. You know, like he just stops in for a visit. Um, and it's almost comical the way the verse reads 
in verse 1, it says, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Well, that makes perfect sense, right? That's what you do if you want to show some appreciation to a guy who just raised your brother from the dead. Come on in, buddy. You want a sandwich? You, you need something to eat? Sit down. Let me, let me take, take a load off, right? You want to be a good host to a guy who's done this. And so Martha serves as usual. She always comes up as the one who's doing the, the serving, right? And Lazarus is our host. And then Mary engages in this deeply meaningful ceremony in this, in this moment by anointing Jesus' feet. And, 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 you know, this isn't some kind of Levitical prescription where she was supposed to do this because it was part of the law. The text would tell us there were two reasons why she did this. She was showing gratitude, right? She... The, the, the text would say that G- Lazarus, the one that Jesus raised from the dead, therefore she came. Like, because of what you've done for my brother, I just want to honor you. I want to I worship you. And so she, that's one reason why she did this. And the other reason it would say, the text would say, is that she's preparing him for his burial. Like, I don't think Mary knows all the mechanics about how this is going to go down. But she, she's aware of the current situation. That there's a lot of hostility around here right now, and you showing up here is a bad idea. Jesus, I don't think you're making it out of here alive. So she understands that much, that he's headed for Jerusalem during a, a, a tipping point right now. And so she, just like Jesus has been saying on and on and on, I think she's finally, it's embedding in her heart that the giver of life is fixing to go and give his life as a ransom for many. And she offers the very best that she possesses, the very most valuable possession that she has. And then she offers the most treasured part of herself, her hair. Paul would say a woman's hair is her glory. And the only time that a woman would let her hair down was on her wedding night for her husband. That was an intimate moment. And she did that for Jesus, the very best of who she is and the very best of what she has. That is Christianity. That's what it means to love Jesus. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Matthew 13, 44 would say the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered it up and then in his joy went and sold everything that he had and went and bought that field. That's what Christianity looks like. Giving our all to the one who gave his all to us. Jesus did not need this gift. This wasn't something that he's like, man, I really use something here. I'm kind of smelly. Like that's not, he didn't need this, but do you think he valued it a little bit? You bet he did. You bet he did. I, I can remember this. Uh, I must've been in junior high. I may have been a little bit younger than this. Um, and, and I don't know if they still do this in school or not, but they would, they would give like every year they would do like this deal where you have a magazine with just a bunch of trinket junk in it that kids could buy. Like they bring it home and they kind of sell it to other people too. Um, and so at that time, um, uh, I, I bought two things. I don't even remember what I bought my dad. So it wasn't, apparently wasn't that meaningful, but I remember what I bought my mom and it was this, uh, I did we didn't have chores or chore money or anything like that. That was so very foreign to us. Um, and so I bought her this little plastic yellow trash can pencil sharpener. <laughs> so you could take it and you can sharpen your pencil in the shavings, go right in the little trash can. I can remember that. Like I get, you know what I'm saying? So like that, 
here's the deal. Like, she wouldn't get a dime for it on eBay if she tried to sell it. You and I, we all have things. I have papers and things that my kids have brought home, little Father's Day things that, that are worthless to anyone else. But I wouldn't sell them for a million dollars. Because it came forth from a heart of a child or for someone who loves and wants to just honor and, and, and show gratitude. And so that's, that's what I believe is going on in this moment. That's what's happening here. And what's happening here today as we, as we gather in this place. That's what's going on here. Right? We gather here today not because we have a cool band who's really talented and can do music and lead us, usher us into worship and, 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 and speakers and preachers and people who can teach or good, com- strong community. All these things are little plastic trash can pencil sharpeners for the kingdom. That's all they are. That's why we do what we do here. We just want to bring our best, whatever we can give out of an overflow of our heart. Give that to Jesus. Because he gave so much to us. And there in the middle of this room where it's filled with the fragrance of worship. There's one who just doesn't get it. Judas would stand up and say, Objection, Your Honor. Why is she doing that? You know, we could go and we can sell that, get some money and, and help the poor. Is it possible to look in the face of the giver of life and have your heart beat for, the, for a love of money? Is it possible? You bet it is. You see it happening right here. Is it possible to sit in a room that's filled with worship while your heart longs for that which will buy you what you want? You bet it does. You bet it could happen. Notice that Jesus would disguise his greed in a concern for the poor. Is it possible to celebrate social, social justice out in the world and compassion ministry out in the world all the while caring for ourselves only? It's happening right here in the Word. Is it possible to pray and to sing songs to Jesus and lift our hands in worship and, and all the while belong to Team Judas? Yes. It's very possible and it's happening. And as the sun would rise up in Bethany the next morning, this crowd who heard what Jesus did, and I just want to point that out, that someone saw what Jesus did and they would not stop talking about it until someone else heard it and they want to see, they want to know, they want to part. Just a side note for you to think about. And as these crowds would would hear what Jesus had done with Lazarus, they want to see the show. And so they show up and the place goes crazy. So not only do they go out to see Jesus, but they pull out palm branches. That's how crazy it's gotten. They pull out palm branches, and you have to know the backstory about the palm branches. Traditionally, what we've seen at the Feast of Tabernacle, while we didn't cover it, that was a, that was a prescription that God gave in Leviticus. That there would be a moment during the feast that they would take out their, their, their palm branches and, and wave them around. And so that was the only time this would happen. And here you see that they would, um, in the Feast of, of the Tabernacles, this, this idea of, of showing their, their palm branches and waving them around in celebration was to remember that God liberated us from the tyranny of Egypt, that we're free, we're free people now, that a king came and he liberated us from Egypt. And so that idea generally just became associated with, with victory, uh, uh, with, with escape, with freedom from tyranny and those who would oppress 
uh, to give oppressive rule. And so we would, just a, a little historical lesson um, outside of our scripture would be uh, Simon the Maccabee, uh, about two centuries earlier, would, would go into Jerusalem and would overthrow the current Syrian regime that had ruled over the place. And so when he came riding into town, they pulled the palm branches out. They started waving them around as a sign of liberation, as a sign of freedom, of a sign of nationalistic zeal. That we have a king now, and he's overthrown the enemy. We're no longer going to live in this oppressed state anymore. You, you could just imagine the, the, the pride that was, that was welling up there. And so this was a symbol of that zeal that says, hey, we're taking over. We got our place back. We, we, we're in the proper order now. We own the place now. We have a ruler who's going who's gonna to take care of things. And so they began also chanting, Hosanna, Hosanna. And this word Hosanna is a transliteration of the Hebrew phrase Hoshiana. Hoshia means, means uh, um, save or, or uh, save now. Na means now or, or please or right away. Hoshiana. And so it's, they're saying save us now. Save us please. Save us now. Save us please. And it's taken from Psalm 118 where it would say Hosanna. Save us now. Save us. We pray. O Lord, O Lord, we pray. Give us Success, And in the very next line of Psalm 118, it would say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're crying out, save us, save us. And then they would proclaim, the one blessed by the Lord is here to save you. It became less of a cry for help and more of a cry of victory. We need salvation. We need salvation. And then our king is here. Our king has come. The king of Israel is here. He's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to crush them. He's going to lower our taxes. He's taken over this place. And so they're gathered as a crowd in this place. And they begin to chant and wave their palm branches. In that moment, if you're one in the crowd, you have to wonder how Jesus is fixing to respond to this. Will he do what he did last time we tried to make him king? Do you guys remember whenever Jesus fed the 5,000? They saw what he did and it's like, oh, we're making him king. And Jesus is like, oh, what's that over there? He takes off. Don't want to be king. His time has not yet come. Now his time has come. And in this moment, the crowds are screaming, the king is here. And Jesus looks at his disciples. He says, I'm going to ride in. I'm riding into town today. And like, you got to know something about this. Like, they're already... I mean, they're, on a, they're at a breaking point right now. They are so full of zeal and pride, and, and they're ready to do just whatever it takes. And when Jesus would say this, I'm riding into town, well, that packed so much meaning here. This would have landed on his disciples like a bombshell because here's the deal. Jesus never rode anywhere. He never rode anywhere. He walked everywhere he went. How many times do, do we see him going back and forth from Jerusalem to Bethany? We would see in one of the other Gospels that during this Passover week, he was going back and forth every day. He would ride in on this, in this moment right here, and then at the end of the day, he would just leave out. It's like that, doesn't, that isn't how an, a conquering king would, would set things up. Bethany's less than two miles away from Jerusalem. It's not like he really needs a ride there, especially if he's a one who walks everywhere. So why is he doing this? Why, why, does he, why does he do this? Because there's only one kind of person who rides into the city. 
And that's a conquering king. He who had just defeated the opposition would ride into the city on this war horse and everyone, the crowds would rush out of the city to go and usher him into his new place where he ruled and reigned. And so Jesus looks at them and says, I'm riding in. And they're like, are you serious? You're going to ride in? Like, this is fueling the hype at this point. And he's just saying, he's confirming, he says, that's right, I am your king. That's right, I do own this city. Behold, your king. Go get me a donkey. At this point, you're with your palm branch and you're saying, get him. Yes. Do what? A donkey? So, you know, we, we always say, you know, there was at the beginning of the week, they were crying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And at the end of the week, they're yelling, crucify him, crucify him. I believe their heart to crucify him started right here. Wait, wrong kind of king, man. You, you know what's going on? Like the text says that it, his disciples didn't understand. I can't understand what he said. They just looked at him like, man, you sure? You sure about this? I mean, it's, it's a pretty bad PR move right here, fixing to do this. I mean, conquerors don't ride donkeys. Conquerors ride war horses. You sure you want to do this? And so he says, not only a, a donkey, but a young one. Luke would tell us one that has never even been ridden before. An unbroken donkey. So Jesus steps in and says, Behold, I am your king. I come to take rule and behold my steed. Not a show of power. And so he rides in on this little animal that, that is for a child or for a hobbit. It's, it's a silly move. And so imagine being that one in the crowd clenching the, the palm branch. Like, you just felt the, the, the heart of liberation. Like this, you, you were ready, and then this is going down. And so why is he doing this? Why is he doing all of this? I don't understand it either. Like, if I'm standing there, I'm like, wait, what just happened? You sure? And so John would go on to tell us that Jesus is making a statement. He's making a statement. He's fulfilling what was told in Zechariah 9.9. You see, in the Old Testament, um, Zechariah 9, uh, what's going on there, the prophet is prophesying about the arrival of a different conquering king, the king Alexander the Great. He's prophesying about what's going on there. Zechariah would, would tell how he would move down from north to south. And how he was crushing everyone and everything in his path. The text would build up in verse 5 of this sense of impending doom that's upon us. It's, that's coming toward Jerusalem. This guy's coming to take over. And he's prophesying this. And he says, Tyre will be devoured by fire. Ashkelon will see it and be afraid. Gaza will writhe in anguish. Ekron's hopes are confounded. This would be as if North America was being invaded and we would hear word that Canada has been overthrown. That the entire northeastern seaboard has been wiped out, has been crushed, and he has come as far as Shreveport and he is on our back door and he is fixing to take over. But our Lord will encamp around us as a guard, Zechariah would say. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation he, is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal 
of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, also because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from this waterless pit. The crowd is ready to boil over in war. They're ready. The Jewish leadership, they're afraid. They're afraid because this is going to start an insurrection. This is going to start a war. We have to stop what's going down here because this is going to be bad. Rome's going to come in and just crush us if this, if this guy keeps on with his shenanigans. And this is a common response when someone has a confrontation with Jesus. Fear. Afraid of what's going to happen. Some of you in this room may be terrified by the idea of Jesus being your king because of what it might cost you, what you might have to give up. If I really obey him and give him my life and give him what he asked for, man, he's going to crush my social life. I'm going to lose my friends. Man, the people that I love dearly, he's going to take that from me. If I show up at my school, if I show up at my job and start talking about Jesus this way, it's over. If I give him my life, he'll take my dreams and my aspirations and everything I got planned. He's going to take all of that away from me and he's going to ruin them. If I submit to Jesus, if I submit to him, he will ruin this relationship that I'm in. And I just can't give that up right now. See, when we have a confrontation with Jesus, we're always afraid because it, we have to count the cost. And we feel like he's a ruling forceful king who would crush us and take from us and harm us. That's a common response that a conquering king would do. And there's someone in this text who is connected to what Jesus is really about. And it's not the crowd. It's not the disciples. It's not the religious leaders. It's that donkey. Like he gets what's going on here. A donkey, the text would say, a young one that has never been ridden. One that's never been ridden. What happens if you jump on the back of an animal that's never been ridden? He's not going to turn around and say, where to, buddy? He's going to kick and buck and bite because he doesn't trust you. Why? He's smart. Because we, we harm those animals. How do you break a horse? You, you instill fear in them by harming them. They don't want to hurt anymore, so they're going to do whatever you want because they're afraid. That's why he's doing this. But what happens when Jesus jumps on an animal, a young animal that's never been ridden before, riding in the midst of this heated, screaming crowd, calm and peaceful, not even batting an eye? Why? Because he has Jesus. And Jesus is a different kind of king and a different kind of ruler and a different kind of boss, a different kind of leader. When Jesus is in control of your life, he doesn't crush you or instill fear in you. He brings freedom and he brings peace from fear, social anxiety, financial instability, fear of being alone, whatever it is that is haunting you right now. He brings freedom. In the next moment, Jesus is at the apex of his ministry. 
and he's at the apex of his popularity. Everybody in town, over two million people are talking about this guy right now. The Greeks would come. These are not Jews. These are people who are outside of God's chosen people. God chose Israel to be his people and he would be their God. And all throughout the Old Testament we see this, these, these high moments and these low moments where, where Israel was obedient and they followed the commands of God and then there were times where they were disobedient and they were cast off. That they would go into, uh, they, they would be carried off into slavery, into exile. And then God would hear them and they, he would restore them and this was back and forth all throughout the Old Testament. And here we have those who are outside of that circle. The Greeks. And it's interesting that the text would say there were Greeks who were there to worship. Worship? Worship God? You see, even God himself creates space for those who don't, who don't yet belong to him. Right? It's, that, that's what we see in the temple courts. We explain that when we're walking through the book of Ephesians. This dividing wall of hostility was where the Greeks stopped. They did not walk past that point. And Ephesians would go on to say that he tore down that dividing wall of hostility. Jesus Christ did through his crucifixion and resurrection. And so they approach him. And they say, wait a minute. Is this something just for the Jews or are you willing to step outside of that box? Are you for the nations too? We want, to, we, want, we want to see what's going on here. And at this moment, Jesus doesn't even, he doesn't even acknowledge that. He stands up and he solidifies his purpose for why he's come to earth. It's a major turning point at this moment. He says in verse 23, he answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is the hour of my glorification, and this is my glory. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Here is the glory of your king. Here it is. He's not coming to rule. He's not coming to crush. He is coming to be crushed. He is coming to be dropped like a seed into the dirt. He says, I am here to die, and my glory is my death. And as Jesus dies, he brings forth life. And this is the picture he's given to us now. He's a different kind of king, but a king nonetheless. And his road to glory goes right through the valley of the shadow of death. That's where his glory is found. And if you want to come, if you want to ride along with the king, if you really, really, really want life, you'll have to lose yours too. Death will have to come for you too. And it's death in the sense of all your plans, all your possessions, all of Whatever it is that currently rules you as king, that's where death has to come. Jesus said, in my vindication at the resurrection, you too will be vindicated. That this will be for not, you're, you're not giving up something, you're, you're not trading for less than anything. But we just have to know what our treasure is. Our treasure is not found in my pockets or in my bank account. It's not found in my possessions, and it's not found even, even in my family. It's found in Jesus. That's where, that's where all the hope and all the glory is found. And so the, the moment that he 
that he throws out that statement in Matthew that says, there's a man who saw a treasure in a field. And he covered it up. And when it's covered up, it, does, it just looks like a plain field, but he knew what was in that field. And it was worth more than anything else he owned, anything else he had. And so he went home and he got rid of everything. His most prized possession, all of who he is, all of what he has, put at the feet of Jesus. And so your death is coming too. Death to everything apart from Jesus. Full allegiance to Jesus. So we don't want to make any bones about it, right? We want to be upfront with you about what it takes to follow Jesus because we feel like Jesus was upfront with us. This is what it's going to take. You want to follow me? My road to glory is headed to the cross. And on the other side of that, death to everything else that is currently ruling over you has to go. It's gone. And he's worth it. Because he is a better king than anything that you are currently worshiping. Whether it be a person, whether it be a possession, whether it be a current life status. He's better than that. And that's all he asks. It's for everything. Give it to him. It starts with putting your faith in Jesus. Saying, yes, I want you to be my king. And you are the only one able to do that. You are the only one to rule over me and speak peace and to, and to rule with a... With a a firm but loving hand. And he's worth it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you to now, uh, today in the name of your son Jesus who, Lord, we, we can't possibly stand here and say we fully understand everything he has come to do and all the words that he speaks to us and the ways that he challenges us. But Father, I would ask that we do get this one thing, that apart from Christ, there is no eternal life. There is no hope. There is no forgiveness. There is no salvation. There is no power for repentance. There is no ability to be obedient. So Father, we need Christ. I would pray, Father, that through the, through the power of your Holy Spirit and through the proclamation of your word, the kingship of Jesus would become a reality to someone in this room today. Father, I would pray for us who realize today that we very well may be serving a different king, all the while proclaiming Christ as our king. So, I, Father, I pray that our, our lives would align with what we say and what we proclaim, that Jesus is king and all of our allegiance is his. Father, thank you for giving us this picture of humility and of ultimate sacrifice, knowing that we could never accomplish that on our own, that we would need Christ to come into this world to bear the weight of all the sins of this world, 
and to carry them to the grave so that we might be forgiven, that we might be free, that we might experience peace, even in the midst of chaos around us, that we would experience peace. Let this picture uh, be embedded in our hearts today, that we see this unbroken wild animal completely at peace because of who is in control. We love you, Jesus, and we ask these things in your name. Amen.